The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Great. Okay. Uh, then, uh, without further ado, let's uh, move on to the forum. Our first uh, uh, speaker is Professor Justin Ning, uh, the, uh, our founding director of CCIA and also uh, the former uh, chief economist of the World Bank. Uh, I don't think I need to give a very uh, extensive introduction to Justin, but uh, the floor is yours. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to come back to this forum. I was here for the first time, but in the past four years, I was the chief economist of the World Bank, and it was too busy, so I did not participate in the previous three ones. But uh, this time, it's a good occasion for me to talk about the future of China's economic growth. We know that China achieved remarkably in the past 33 years since the reform started in 1979. The average annual growth rate was 9.9% per year, continuously for 33 years. And that kind of records was a miracle because we never observed that in human history. But recently, in China and in the global forum, there was a lot of concern about whether China can continue to maintain such high growth rate in the coming years. And it is so because domestically we observe since the beginning of 2012, uh, 11, the growth rate in China dropped quarterly by quarterly. And in the third quarters of last year, the growth rate in China was only 7.4%. And so people started to wonder whether the Chinese economy has already lost the engine lost the steam for the growth. Internationally, it is also important because we know the high-income country is likely to be trapped in some kind of new normal. The growth rate is likely to be very sluggish, and uh, the market is, is likely to be very volatile. And uh, China is a large player today in the global market. If the Chinese economy loses the steam, I think it will put further pressure on the global financial markets. But to answer whether China will be able to maintain its dynamic growth in the coming years, we need to understand how come it was possible for China to have 33 years of average 9.9% growth. We know that high economic growth is a modern phenomenon. Before the 18th century, every country in the world grew almost nothing, according to historians like Angus Madison. And his estimation showed, even for the high-income country in Europe, before 18th century, its annual growth rate of per capita income 
was 0.05% per year. It means that it took 1,400 years to double per capita income. And entering into the 18th century and early 19th century, the rate of economic growth increased 20 times from 0.05% to about 1% per year. And the time required to double per capita income reduced from 1,400 years down to 70 years. And entering into the late 19th century and the 20th century, the high-income country only average the per capita income grew at 2% per year. That means it took about 35 years to double per capita income. And what made it possible to reduce the time for doubling per capita income from 1,400 years down to 70 years, down to 35 years? It was because after the Industrial Revolution in the mid-18th century, the rate of technological changes accelerated. And it makes the income increase can be accelerated also. If technological changes introduced by the Industrial Revolution was the driver for the dynamic income growth in the advanced country, for developing countries, certainly the drivers is also the technological innovations. And for the developing country, there's something called advantage of backwardness. If the country know how to tap into the potential of technological gap with the high-income country in the process of their technological innovation to reduce the cost of innovation and the risk of innovation, a developing country can grow several times higher than the high-income country. And from the historical evidence we know, after the Second World War, there were 13 economies in the world achieved 7% or more growth rate continuously for 25 or more years. And China becomes one of those 13 economies after the reform started in 1979. So the answer to the question why China was possible to maintain 9.9% growth rate continuously for more than three decades was the advantage of backwardness. And if you want to know how long China can maintain the dynamic economic growth, again, the question is that how large the advantage of backwardness China still enjoys. And for this, we can be quite optimistic because the newest data I have, again, based on Angus Madison, that was in 2008. In 2008, the per capita income measured by purchasing power parity in China was 21% of the per capita income of the US. And it was similar to Japan, in 1951, Singapore in 1967, Taiwan in 1975, and Korea in 1977. 
And those four economies were among those 13 economies I just mentioned. And for Japan, tapping into the potential of the advantage of backwardness, it maintained 20 years of average 9.2% growth rate from 1951 to 1971. And Singapore, tapping into the same potential, maintained 20 years of 8.6% growth rate from 67 to 87. And Taiwan, again, relied on that potential, maintained 20 years of average 8.3% growth rate from 75 to 95. And Korea's, again, rely on that drivers, maintained 20 years of average 7.6% growth rate from 77 to 97. And we know that after the reform in 1979, China followed the same model as other East Asian economies. So if with the same technological potential, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, they could maintain 20 years of average 7.6% to 9.2% growth rate. I'm confident there's a potential for China to maintain another 20 years of average 8% growth rate. The potential is there. Certainly, it's only a potential. If China want to tapping into that potential, China need to maintain the stability of the economies. And the stability of the economy, China need to overcome quite a number of issues. This first one certainly is the income distribution issue. China started the reform with quite an egalitarian society. But now the income distribution is widening, widening, and reaching certain kind of alarm level. Secondly, China also needs to cope with uh, the widespread corruption. And especially if you have a high income inequality and a corruption together, it can cause all kinds of social resentment. And uh, that may threaten the stability, and without stability, growth is impossible. And uh, so if we want to understand whether China can continue to tap into the potential, we need to know what are the causes of the widening of income distribution? What are the causes for the corruption to be so widespread? And in effect, according to my analysis, those kind of issues are the prices that China paid for the dynamic economic growth in the past three decades. Because we know, when China started reform, China adopted not the structure RP as recommended by the Washington Consensus. China adopted a gradual dual-track approach in the process of transition. On the one hand, continued to provide some transitory support to the old heavy industry state-owned sectors to maintain stability. But liberalized the entry to the new sectors which are consistent 
with China's competitive advantages in the labor-intensive OO-oriented sectors. And uh, to tap into the potential advantage of backwardness and to achieve dynamic economic growth. And that was the reason why during the transition period, China performed such outstanding with stability and dynamic economic growth. But the cause is that the dual approach means China retains many legacies in the past, and especially in the repression of many price signals. For example, in the financial sectors, China has a financial repression, and that is one way to channel the inexpensive capital to the large corporation, mostly owned by the state sectors. And China also replaced the prices of resources as a transitory protection to the old sectors. And those kind of repression and distortion causing, on the one hand, we know whenever you have those kind of repression, you have a lot of opportunity for rent seeking, and that is the reason for widespread corruption. At the same time, that is a transfer of income to the large corporate sectors. And uh, corporate sectors are either owned by the state or by the rich people. And that are the main reason for the widening of income distribution in China. And I think that if China wants to maintain the dynamic growth to tap into the potential of the advantage of backwardness, China needs to further the reform to remove the financial repression, to liberalize the prices in the resource sectors, and uh, to remove the rent in the economic system in order to, sell, to cope with the issue of corruption, at the same time to improve the income distribution in China. And luckily, recently, China just had the 18 Party Congress. And uh, in the message from the Party Congress, the Chinese parties and the government will continue, on the one hand, to deepening the market oriented reform and also to remove the distortion in the factor prices, including finance natural resources and land, and are also committed to improve the income distribution, allow the household, the level, force to increase their income share in the distribution of income in China. So with the commitment, I think it's very likely that China will be able to tap into the potential of advantage of backwardness and maintain around 8% growth rate for the coming years. And you know that one of the target for the 18 parties Congress is to double the GDP in China from 2010 to 2020. And to increase, also double the household income in the period from 2010 to 2020s. And with this reform agenda and the advantage of backwardness, I'm quite confident China can achieve that, that target 
China will be able to maintain around 8% growth rate in the coming 10 years or even more 20 years. Thank you very much. I'll be open to questions. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Okay, so let's uh, now open the floor and uh, take questions. Uh, could, could you use microphone so I can hear well? Professor Lee, I'm Xinhua News Agency yeah. reporter. Yeah. Uh, and then I, want, I have a question. How do you think of uh, the U.S. manufacturing in sourcing and its impact to China economy? The manufacturing sectors? Uh, in sourcing. In sourcing, okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Well, certainly that uh, U.S. has some trouble in the unemployment issues. And uh, the government has an intention to increase manufacturing jobs in order to reduce unemployment rate. But I think that in some new sectors that might be possible. But for the sectors that China has competitive advantages, it's unlikely that U.S. will be able to take that jobs back. We know, for example, the iPhone. It cost about 400 U.S. dollars in a market in the U.S. But China only get $10 for assembly the iPhone. But if U.S. want to take that $10 job back to the U.S., I think the prices of the iPhone will increase at least more than $100. And if Apple wants to do that, Apple is very likely to lose the market competition with Samsung. So for the sake of what we call competitive advantages, U.S. is a high-income country. U.S. can only go into sectors with high labor productivities that require a large capital you know, components for their operation. But currently, the competitive advantage sector in China is labor-abundant, labor-intensive sectors. So I think that the collaboration, the economic trade between U.S. and China is a win-win situation, and I don't think that U.S. wants to lose in order to take those kind of jobs back. Karen Christensen from Berkshire Publishing Group. Um, you've been talking about the predicting the rise in household income for yeah. ordinary Chinese people as doubling. Well, I'm concerned about some uh, something else that affects ordinary Chinese people, which is pollution and the problems of of you know the the health and um, and quality of life that um, that especially poorer people in China. Are, are suffering from. So how does that factor in when you think of, when you're predicting um, improvements in the life of, of Chinese people? Okay, good questions. I think that um, in a pollution is increasing in China, it's observable to everyone. But we also need to recognize China is still at a stage of development which requires high energy inputs. And uh, that will means it has more you know, uh, uh, pollution contents. And it's a stage 
like any other country, in their income level. For example, New York was quite polluted. In the 19th century, even in the early 20th century, London was in a similar situation, Tokyo was in a similar situation, because that was a stage of development. But that's not an excuse. It's a stage of development, it cannot avoid the boat, but we can mitigate the pollution. And for the mitigation, Chinese government was quite committed. As you can see, people working on climate changes, people working on environment improvement and so on, they were quite impressed by the program that been implemented by China to reduce the emission of CO2 to all other you know, contents. And I think that you can read you know, report like Stick, uh, Nick Stern, you know, he has a lot of writing and he's a global authority on that issue. So I would say, yes, it's still on a stage. If China wants to increase income, China cannot totally avoid that. But with the modern technology and so on, China can mitigate that and the Chinese government is committed to the mitigation. Hi, my name is Kevin Slayton. I'm from China Labor Watch. Um, I was thinking about your first uh, answer, the first question yeah. um, about you were making a comparison about uh, with Apple, and if Apple came to America, that how what that, how that would affect the iPhone and their manufacturing. And um, according to a report by iSupply, it's an organization that does some supply chain analysis. Uh, the iPhone 5 costs something like $200 for the entire process to get it to the shelf, and I, the iPhone is sold for $650, so Apple's making something like $400 in profit on every iPhone, if, if that's correct. And so if they brought it to, to America, they, they might not lose anything on manufacturing, just profit. But the point of, uh, the question I have here is, by, this brings up another question. By these companies, these global companies going into China, you, you mentioned uh, income distribution uh, as a problem with reform. By these global companies going into China and using what they see is very cheap labor in manufacturing, the, the migrant workers, the nomin gong, what are they doing to, what, what is this process doing to affect uh, or prevent the Chinese government from being able to effectively change the income distribution? Is, it, is this pressure, you know, China is this place of cheap labor to, to foreign companies. Is it, yeah. is it, how is it affecting it? How can uh, companies help to improve this process? Or what can the yeah. government do to help improve the process? Very good question. How to do that? Well, the first one, China need to reduce the subsidies to the large corporation and rich peoples. And uh, as I mentioned, China has a financial repression. And so for those, pe those rich people and large corporations, they get the financial services from the banking sectors or stock market. Actually, they are, they, are they are receiving subsidies. And who subsidizes them? Those people who put the money into the financial system and they cannot get financial services. In general, they are poorer people. And under the kind of situation, if you ask the poor people to subsidize the growth of the rich people, the income distribution will be worsening. And if China remove the financial repression, those kind of subsidies will be reduced. And uh, so the poor people, they can get the financial services. They can also get adequate return to their 
in our saving and so on, that will improve income distribution on the one hand. And secondly, also China need to you know, develop the economies according to China's competitive advantages. At this stage of development in China, abundant labor supply, relatively inexpensive, well-educated, is the competitive advantage of Chinese economy. And if China develop economies according to that, then that will create a lot of job opportunities. And with the job opportunities, you provide more, you know, return more employment to the, gen to the ordinary households or relatively poor households. And so if they can employ it, then they can share the fruit of economic development. Not only so, because those kind of process is consistent with China's competitive advantages. Chinese economy can be very competitive, capital can be accumulated very quickly, and the capital will turn from relatively scarce to relatively abundant, and labor will turn from relatively abundant to relatively scale, and the wage rate will increase very rapidly. And we know that rich people get their income mostly from the return to capital. Ordinary households get their income mostly from their labor services. And by this process, you know, the labor force, that is the main source of income owned by the general households, will become increasingly valuable, and the capital owned by the rich people will be increasingly relatively you know, not so valuable. And by this process, income distribution can be improved. And in effect, that is the reason why the East Asian economies, like Japan, Korea, Taiwan, in their rapid growing periods, they achieve dynamic economic growth and at the same time improving improvement in their income distribution. And I mentioned that Chinese government now committed to you know, adopt those kind of development model by deepening the market-oriented reform. So I think by this mechanism, it's achievable dynamic economic growth as well as improvement in income distribution. Uh, we have so many hands up. So start with Jeff. Thank you, Professor Lin. A very good presentation nice on how China fits into the, the growth model. You emphasized the need for and the expectation that the new government would continue reform to keep the dynamic of growth going yeah. and counter uh, corruption and distribution of income. And those reforms, I think you've said, are to take away opportunities for rent-seeking and to reduce subsidies and to create a world where there are more level playing field for everybody yeah. in the economy. As China does that, do you think it will be a level playing field for everybody, including foreign firms and foreign investors, uh, will it be something that is uh, uh, kind of reserved for China? Well, I think that is a goal of the WTO, and China committed to that goal. And in the process, you see the field is becoming more liberal playing since the China joining the WTO. But uh, as I mentioned, China was a very pragmatic country. At the beginning of the reform, the China was a capital scarce economies because in 1979, the per capita income in China was less than one third of the average income in the sub-Saharan Africa. 
And if China would not give some kind of transitory support to the old capital intensive sectors, them all, them will go bankrupt and uh, introduce all kinds of social political instabilities. And so China, in a, in a transitional process, China retains some protection to those older sectors. But I think it's time for China to remove those kind of you know, transitory protection for two reasons. As I mentioned, you know, on the one hand, that income distribution in China is getting worse and worse. Corruption is a big issue. At the same time, China is not such a poor country anymore because by the end of 2012, likely per capita income in China reached about 6,000 US dollars. And so many sectors in the past was not, were not China's competitive advantages. Today, they are China's competitive advantages, like in the car sector, equipment sectors. So there's no reason for China to continue those kind of subsidies or protections. And I think that as long as China remove those kind of you know, transitory protection, then the playing field will be leveled. Okay, I see a lot of hands here. Uh, how about we do this? Uh, we, I will correct uh, uh, most of the hands here, and uh, I, I think uh, we should uh, uh, let those questions uh, to be heard. Then okay. Justin can choose some of them to okay. answer. Good. Okay, yeah. starting from here. Yeah, please keep the question short. Thank you, Professor Lin. My name is Yang from Midway Group. And uh, thank you for your uh, long-term forecast and an op optimistic view on Chinese economy. So in your forecast, what do you think are the likely scenarios for inflation and uh, Chinese yuan? OK, so that's a good question. OK, in the middle. Thank you, Dan, Dan Rosen from the Rhodium Group. Uh, Dr. Len, great to see you. Um, you've said that the factors that led to the success of the Chinese model over the past 34 years are the same thing that are presenting challenges to maximizing growth in the future. So in light of that complicated Chinese experience, what has the World Bank taken away from China's path and used to generalize in its advice to countries around the world? Okay. You have a unique uh, perspective yeah. to, uh, to, to speak to that. Okay. Uh, two more hands over there. Yeah. Hi, uh, Mr. Lin. This is Helen from World Journal. Recent years, the Chinese company going to the U.S. stock market facing the problem of uh, credibility. So I just wonder, for the uh, Chinese company's part, can you give some suggestions? And for the U.S. part, uh, what, uh, I mean, what pro, uh, improvement uh, for the uh, process or communication work should be done? Thank you. Okay. Good morning, sir. Uh, Mike Wiebe of China Business Knowledge. Every great society has uh, political corruption. Um, do you think that uh, the corruption in China is worse or the same as others? that have grown, and can you give us a couple reasons for your answer? Okay, let's uh, take uh, then two, mo two more over there. Let's. Professor Ling, uh, this is Coco from Key Global. Um, what do you, uh, what will make you think that this leadership will commit and execute 
the reform plan. And next. Hello, Professor Lin. Betty Wong from Intro America. Can you discuss the challenge of higher education and its impact on the economy? Okay. Uh, uh, you have uh, two minutes <laughs> to answer all the questions. <laughs> well, inflation, I feel comfortable because Chinese government understand and uh, China should not rely on expansionary monetary policy as a counter-cyclical measure. China should rely more on fiscal policy, and with that, I think inflation can be you know, controlled. And the second one about you know, China's model, China's experiences, that's one of the topics I like a lot because I was the chief economist of World Bank. But to have a short answers, I just recently published a book for <laughs> <laughs> the quest for prosperities, and I try to elaborate what my ideas about other developing countries can learn from successful countries' economies like China. And the credibility of the firm list in the New York Stock Exchanges and so on, I think that it certainly is a process. If you look into the early years in the U.S. and so on, similar problems occurred. But on the one hand, if the regulators, the stock markets, to enforce the discipline, then the Chinese firm will learn the lesson. I'm sure the behavior can be improved if you have the right mechanism there. And then the political corruption. Again, it's a phenomenon occurred in almost every country. But there's no excuse for China to allow that to you know, uh, continue or to become you know, more seriously. I think for any country, you know, the goal is to reduce the corruption, and China should adopt that strategy. Then uh, commitment of the reform in China. I think that if you look into the records, you know, past 34 years, you know, it's quite remarkable. You know, China, every year, discuss about what should be the goal, what should be the target. And they try to implement that. Certainly, the implementation not only depends on their determination, but also depends on the internal and external conditions. And as long as the internal and external conditions allow China to maintain stability, then China will continue to have the reform to promote dynamic economic growth. And uh, higher education. Certainly, it's very important, so that's why we go back to the university to offer programs to you know, enhance our human capital in China. Finally, I have another book about the <laughs> Chinese economy. And uh, because time is limited, I cannot elaborate all my ideas. But if you want to know more about China, this book is the best one called <laughs> Demystifying the Chinese Economy. Demystifying the Chinese Economy. Okay, very good. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Justin. Uh, now